Welcome back to another episode of Slay House Presents. I'm your host, Trevor. With me today is one of my uh, very, very favorite friends and writers, uh, Brian McCauley. As a WGA screenwriter, Brian McCauley has written five films for the Lifetime Network in addition to writing and producing the award-winning thriller Dismissed for Boulder Light Pictures. He sold his TV series pitch Affliction to Sci-Fi Network in a pilot development deal and penned an episode of Fuller House for Netflix. Brian's debut novel, Curse of the Reaper, was named one of the best horror books of 2022 by Esquire. His Christmas horror novella, Candy Cane Kills, was released by Shortwave Publishing to praise from Library Journal, Booklist, and Kirkus Reviews. His short fiction and nonfiction have appeared in Dark Matter Magazine, Nightmare Magazine, and the upcoming debut issue of Monstrous Magazine. Brian is a clinical assistant professor of screenwriting at the Sidney Poitier New American Film School of Arizona State University. Brian, oh my gosh. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's such a, such a treat to be back and to see you again. I'm really looking forward to it. I think this is like my holiday gift. I just feel like uh, this is the perfect time to talk to you. It's the perfect time to talk about Candy Cane Kills. And uh, I, I'm just so pleased to have you. I'm so glad we were able to get this on the books. Um, and yeah, I know having last seen you at StokerCon and catching up there and now getting back into it here. And hopefully seeing you again at the next one. I am uh, <laughs> saving religiously for, for StokerCon. Very excited for it. Um, my wife and I are both going to be coming this year. And uh, we're just, we've, we've got all kinds of, of things to celebrate and things to, to, you know, to explore. Candy Cane Kills. Let's, <laughs> let's dive into this, like, <laughs> delectable treat of a holiday novel because uh i was such a huge fan of uh curse of the reaper and then we get to candy cane kills and i was like is it possible that brian mccauley has written the perfect slasher like <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh that's very kind of you to say <laughs> it's a it's a it's a, a punch in the mouth of a book in some ways and yet just <laughs> the sweetest treat anyone could ask for it really straddles that that line really really well so uh, what is candy cane kills uh, just for the audience who hasn't heard of it yet yeah so candy cane kills um is a novella in the killer vhs series from shortwave books so to kind of set the stage there first that's a series of individual books by individual authors all harkening back to those 80s VHS cover tapes that we used to see on the shelves of, of Blockbuster and the like. Um, and yeah, I was invited to, to write a book by, by Alan Lestovka at Shortwave. And when I found out that it would be coming out in November, December, my brain immediately went to a, a Christmas horror idea. Um, and yeah, the premise of Candy King Kills is um, it focuses on a teenage brother and sister, Austin and Fiona, um, and they're dragged to a remote cottage in the snowy woods by their parents who are, you know, have been on the verge of a divorce for a while. The tensions in the family are very high. Um, and then when they discover that folks may have died in their um, <laughs> rental house, uh, 
and that the killer might be coming back for Christmas, um, things get a little bit more tense from there. It's hard a... to talk about a novella because there's so, <laughs> but we'll get into spoiler territory. We have to. I'm I, I'm sure I will because I can't ever have a conversation about this stuff without you know at least spoiling it a little bit. Um, I don't want to spoil it because I do think that it it is one of those thrill rides that like you just need to experience. Just just go do it. You can do it in an afternoon and then come back and and talk about it. Um, but it it has so many different things just kind of nestled inside it that I absolutely love. You've written kind of two slashers now, this this being a little bit more, um, I, I think, recognizable than kind of the meta narrative slasher that you created with Curse of the Reaper. So, you know, for you, what what differentiated the experience for you from writing something like Curse of the Reaper and then writing Candy Cane Kills? Yeah, great question, because it was a totally different approach. I mean, starting with the fact that Curse of the Reaper is a novel of you know, a little over 300 pages, you know, over 80,000 words, whereas going into Cain and King Kills, I knew it was going to be a novella, and it landed around 30,000 words, so less than half the length, um, about 145 pages. So, and because, again, it's killer VHS, the goal was, I want this to feel like watching one of those old-school VHS horror movies. I've, and gratefully, a lot of reviews have, reviewers have told me that they read it in one sitting in like two to three hours, and that that's the dream to hear is that you can just experience the whole story in one sitting. Um, but a big thing that I was thinking about going into it was knowing that Curse of the Reaper, I think of that book more as a psychological horror novel set in the slasher franchise milieu. And mm. then it gradually becomes more and more like a slasher story. But the most of that structure is more psychological horror thriller um, whereas Candy King Kills, I went into it like, this is going to be like very much that traditional slasher, but adding in some unexpected elements as well. But like chapter one is going to be an opening kill and, you know, certain, certain tropes that I really wanted to play with and lean into because there's so much joy that, that audiences and readers can get from recognizing little <laughs> Easter eggs and tropes that that it was just uh, that was the goal to have have fun with all of those slasher tropes. I I you know I love a good trope and uh, <laughs> and I know you too love a good trope because uh, at StokerCon you you um, moderated a panel specifically talking about our you know some of our favorite horror tropes. Um, how do you feel that the screenwriting background that you have you know kind of served this up for you? really well um do you feel like you were able just to kind of like unload like you know kind of a a dream story here or um you know do you do you feel like you were drawing still on more of your kind of novelistic tendencies as a writer i think the biggest kind of um, elements from my screenwriting work and process were definitely story outlining, like I'm a big outliner coming from writing in film and TV. That's always a part of the, the job. Um, and I like to do that with my books and novels and, and novellas as well, to, to know what the scenes and story beats are. And that included in that as well as pacing and thinking about, okay, how is one scene leading to the next and really pulling us along through this character-driven narrative? Um, so that really, that background really helped, especially with this, you know, single, location mostly single night story 
to keep that pacing going. And, um, but then the elements of novel writing that I don't get to do in screenwriting are the depth of, of character development to really get inside many characters' heads. I didn't know at the outset that when I had the outline, I didn't specify whose perspective each chapter was going to be from. And it was kind of a surprise along the way that the characters kind of made it clear that they all deserved and wanted more perspective. Um, so that that's an element that I really got to dig into that's different from screenwriting. And then certainly the, the, the real gnarly, gory kill scenes, um, which, um, uh, which, yeah, getting into the the detail through prose um, with no concerns for budget or anything like that <laughs> which, um, was a was a, a fun thing to do. It's funny because like there is this I've seen this written about several times you know um <laughs> comic book writers talk about like oh well you can do anything you know you don't really have a budget and uh illustrators are of course a little bit more <laughs> reticent to kind of commit to that um but i felt like you you strike this balance in candy king kills of like really kind of high budget gore that also feels extraordinarily like low budget 80s, you know, kind of VHS horror. Like it worked so well. Um, and and so I I I guess I kind of want to know a little bit like did you have any like kind of VHS prompts that it was you know stood out to you as you were writing like oh I I want to do one of these or I want you know I want some of this in my story. Uh great question. Well I guess one thing I should mention I forgot to mention about the this, the killer VHS of it all was part of the prompt um, from the publisher was that he wants the authors to include some kind of found footage element in the story right. as part of the the theme. So that's something that's baked into it as well. Um, and but yeah, that that's those reference points for the that that's something that really got me into horror in the first place was really kind of gooey practical effects in old school horror movies and the sense of creativity from the work of folks like Tom Savini, where you're just like, whoa, mm. um, never seen anything like like that before. Um, so that that was definitely kind of a point of inspiration to think about, okay, for each of these kills, how can I kind of mix up, you know, what the murder weapon is and the the, the, the type of death. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a centerpiece kill that is, wildly elaborate and has kind of <laughs> multiple stages to it um and as those kind of revealed themselves me i was like could i take it further could i add another piece here and just <laughs> I was, I the answer that. was always yes you like do, don't you dare shy away from <laughs> pushing it further uh, yeah in, in the words of uh obi-wan kenobi right that's why i'm here <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh so yeah. you I I was listening to to your interview with Agatha Andrews on the She Wore Black podcast and you mentioned in that interview that you had 12 different characters with 12 different character perspectives in this book um and and that kind of came out as you were writing it so um I I want to dig in a bit of like what was the appeal for you of trying to tackle that many different character perspectives in this book? 
Yeah, I mean, I think what became clear to me was that if I'm if I'm setting up the sort of family drama that then collides with this legendary killer, I wanted that. I wanted the reader to understand the drama from every perspective. Um, that's what became very clear. I thought that it was mostly going to be from Austin's perspective because, you know, the teenage boy perspective is the one that mostly most cleanly aligns with my own. Um, but then I found that you could get so much more kind of empathy and kind of emotional drama out of understanding where the miscommunications are in this family. You know, if you're inside one character's head and looking at mom or dad and having resentments as a kid, but then you get into mom's head and you see why she's struggling and what her hopes and dreams are, it adds this extra layer of kind of pain and tension to explore. And that's that's what I wanted to kind of evoke with these characters was that sense of, okay, I understand why they're all struggling and um, and to give that, yeah, that space to each of them. Do you feel like that ties in at all with some of like the holiday themes that you construct here? Because I think that, you know, when we think of holiday narratives, you know, we think of of a time of like togetherness and community and kind of putting good out into the world and horror doesn't, I mean, not to say that horror doesn't do that or have an interest in that, but that's not what motivates a horror story. Yeah, it's certainly to me that that family drama to me is kind of part and parcel of holidays. <laughs> it's like all the all the the past dramas and tensions and frustrations can come up, especially, you know, when families are living apart and coming together for a holiday or, you know, they're trying to force that happy cheer <laughs> because it's the holidays. Um, so yeah, to me, like holidays are really ripe for drama. I think that that's why there are so many kind of holiday movies and dramas and always centered around family. So to kind of meld that with horror felt pretty intuitive. I, I think too, you talking about empathy and, and emotional drama in this book, um, because I totally see that from, from the perspective of a reader. You know, I the reason why I love this so much is not just because it's totally just balls to the walls, gruesome, um, but because, you know, you you really give every single character, even the ones that we absolutely know are just going to get murdered in like three pages, right? <laughs> you give every one of them a reason to be in this book, a reason to keep living, a reason for us to root for them, or or at least understand where they're coming from. So I, I think about like the place of empathy and emotional drama, not just in this book, but like in horror in general, how do you feel like these ideas play into creating an art that is both horrifying, but also deeply human? At the start of all of my writing courses, I show this brief sort of eight minute video um, about empathy, neuroscience and dramatic writing. And it's it was a neuroscience study that they did that showed that well-told stories, you know, structured through like Freytag's pyramid, actively change people's brains. They, they activate both dopamine and serotonin and, you know, the stress and the, the pleasure, you know, in, in different doses to really engage people and engage that empathy and then can change people's behaviors. And so that's something for me with everything I write that I think about is like, 
And and the word that you chose of, of like rooting for the characters is something that I, I've noticed that specifically in a lot of reviews that I've read for my for both books was I was really rooting for these characters. And I think that it's another thing that comes out of screenwriting, I think, is like characters who have specific kind of goals or hopes or dreams that you can then kind of be on board with and root for them and hope and fear for them. Like it's another thing I talk about a lot in class is it's it's hope versus fear. And you're just constantly mm. raising and lowering the dials on those. If I hope in this scene that this get, character gets this and I'm afraid that this is gonna happen. And like you said, even when it's the opening chapter of a slasher and you're meeting a handyman who you're pretty sure he's not gonna make it out of this chapter alive, but I want you to hope, I want you. <laughs> My heart broke. <laughs> it was funny because I, I heard you read that chapter at StokerCon. And as soon as you had concluded, I was like, Jesus Christ, sign me up. Like, <laughs> But then I got the book in front of me and I opened it up and I was like, I was not emotionally ready again to go through that. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is. Um. That's a tough one. And I had, I used that in my class, actually, my students, we read that chapter and I had them adapt it into a screenplay to show, to talk about the differences in, in writing in different formats. Cause it's a very interior chapter in his head cause he's alone and not talking to anybody. So how do you take that and adapt it into a visual story and still get as much as you can from that interior life. But it's, it's, that's why it's so fun to be able to write in both mediums and to figure out what works in one and doesn't in the other. I I heard you talk about that too with, with Agatha. And I, I wanted to ask you, you know, so what, what were some of the results that you saw from that activity? You know, what were some of the decisions that were made in portraying that very internal scene, you know, kind of externally? I think a lot of um, instincts uh, from students were to add flashbacks and voiceovers, which is a pretty common kind of crutch when you're starting out screenwriting. Um, and some of them wrote very long scenes, like, you know, eight to 10 pages. And then I was able to show them, okay, here's how I, knowing that it's the first scene of the movie and it's gotta be quick, my version is three pages. And here's how I took the information and translated it visually without getting into flashbacks and voiceovers because that's not it's not what we need for this this type of scene um which made it all the more instructive to like let them do their version ask like okay what what was your approach what did you struggle with and then to be able to show them this is how I did it not to say that my version was the best way to do it but here's why why I made the choices that I did um or like this the the book opens like with Rick pulling up to the house right right and I chose to open the visual inside the basement, watching out of that little window as a car pulls up and then the bulkhead opens and Rick enters because I was saying like for a movie, I really wanted to evoke that sense of we're in the darkness and something is waiting here. Yes. And then the character comes down into the darkness with us. Like it's just a different way of navigating storytelling. Well, and this brings up a great point about just, I think, any fiction writing, whether it be for screen or or for uh, something like a novella, you know, something like prose, there there is a kind of like language, if you will, of building dread. You know, there is a, a language of 
of communicating ideas. And so how you frame stuff, you know, that whether it be a visual language that you're learning or, or using, um, it could be camera angles. You know, this is why we see weird camera angles in bizarre, you know, horror from the perspective of someone else. You know, it's like, you know, they're off base, they're skewed. And that creates a kind of tension, you know, a kind of dread. Um, or it just be like the, the, the kind of emotional language that you use in describing a character leading up to, well, this isn't going to end well for the character. And we know kind of from the first couple of sentences, your use and, and intention of language is really important. So, you know, what's some of the language that you use to, to build up these moments? I mean, a lot of it is like in, in Candy Cane Kills, all the chapters are written in a close third perspective. Um, but when I write in close third, I really try to make the language kind of align with the character, even though it's not, you know, first person voice, kind of want the cadence and the flow of it to be evocative of that specific character. Um, so that's one one thing that I think helps to kind of identify and make it more specific. And then once I got to the, you know, one of the perspectives is a is a videotape. And so I was like, well, okay, this has to be written in a much more cold and matter of fact voice, which makes what's happening all the more horrifying, ideally, because it's just kind of a clinical, here's what you're seeing. <laughs> um, and uh, and yeah, I think I think always kind of just mining, mining for the inner pain with all of these characters. Um, like, what is that? What is the thing that they're yearning for that they mm. that they are wishing to get from each other i mean it's all you know love in the end but it it looks different and it it it's you know different love languages for each character kind of thing and that kind of i, t I tend to write to you know as you you said like the rick chapter breaking your heart that's my goal is to like break my own heart every at every turn just be like <laughs> to tap into my inner emo kid and just be like how can i make this as sad as possible <laughs> so just tug those heartstrings because it I don't know it just engages in a more satisfying way to me as a as a writer and a reader that way I think yeah I'm I'm inclined to agree for sure um I don't know why this this book kept breaking my heart over and over and over I think it's because you put us in the headspace of these characters, you know, <laughs> just before their final moments. And it's like, oh man, can we, do we have to go down this road? Yeah, I guess we do, but. Yeah, part of that too is was was the intention of, you know, exploring tropes, like we said earlier. Mm. And then slasher movies, there are kind of tropey characters like like the stoner and like the bitchy girl there's there in in slasher movies you only really usually get the surface level trope and so i was pretty determined to like okay even if you don't like this character when you meet them from the outside once we get inside their heads i'm going to i'm going to show you that there's more there to this character and then hurt you real bad <laughs> <laughs> i again i feel like it it fits in really well too especially with the christmas theme you know because christmas is it's all about hopes and dreams. It's all about, you know, kind of the culmination of this 
this goal for humanity. And so we see these characters with their hopes and dreams in a festive time and then feel heartbreak when they don't make it to the next chapter, you know? And I, I think that that is the beautiful subversion that this book, you know, kind of brings to the table. Um, it characterizes every one of these people for us in a way that we can understand and kind of want to give them that charity of like, well, maybe you could make it through, even though that's not the reality for so many people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of it is, you know, writing as an exercise for myself as a human being in, in flexing that empathy muscle, right. Of like, I tend to mm. be really interested in exploring, you know, certainly in, in Curse of the Reaper, both, both Howard and Trevor have a lot to dislike about them. Uh, yeah. There's, there's a, a real pompousness to Howard and a selfishness to Trevor as well. But then my goal is like, okay, but what's underneath that? What are the layers that I can explore and empathize with so that readers can flex that muscle too? And um, yeah. I know I've said it before and I've said it to you privately, but um, you are my favorite character writer when it comes down to it, because you do these things so incredibly well. Your fiction is so full of this heart. Um, and I, I, it's one of the reasons I come to horror for that, you know, it's because uh, I feel like having a character confront their hope and their fear and, you know, kind of putting ourselves in a, a situation, to understand them through a very difficult time, you know, can be very deeply cathartic. Thank you. No, that means so much to me. And it it is, you know, it's the only reason to write for me. And even with Candy King Kills, I think I I didn't realize how deep I was going to go with these characters. I really, as I said, after Curse of the Reaper, which is like a heavy character study, I was like, all right, this is just going to be a down and dirty slasher. <laughs> and then I start writing it and I'm like, God damn it. I want to go so deep with all these characters. But it is, again, like that's the only way that I can be interested in writing it and to, to you know, writing from that place of love um, and, and creating characters that feel like, you know, and it's that weird kind of artsy fartsy woo woo thing to say, but that like these characters really <laughs> did like come alive and show me who they were. And I was like, oh, cool. Thank you for revealing that to me. I didn't, I didn't sit down and write like, these like profiles and biographies before I started writing, I just put them into the story and then let them kind of speak to me on the page. And it all just kind of revealed itself in there. I love that. I, I, <laughs> I love, I love this book so much. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I, I, um, I also wanted to talk about the Christmas themes and some of the symbolic stuff that you put into this story as well. Um, I heard you talking to Agatha about this a little bit about, you know, the, the, the Christianity of this book, if you will, um, <laughs> kind of some of the nightmares <laughs> that come from that, um, very openly, I'm not, I'm not Catholic. I was raised more non-denominational Christian. Um, but I have, of course, a very expansive education on like European Renaissance uh, art, right? <laughs> and and specifically, a lot of that was Catholic. Um, I got a, a master's degree in Spanish literature. I studied a whole bunch of 
medieval Spanish literature. And it's it's just it's full of like, I don't know, sexy scent saints being like murdered very elaborately. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's the best description of the slasher movie, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> So I, I feel like it works perfectly. Um, and I, I wanted to pick your brain a bit more on that on that topic of, you know, kind of um, setting this not just in in a Christmas season, but also in this like very persecutory, you know, kind of Christian mode of thinking about the holiday and its horror. Yeah, that that's something, you know, the book started with the name Candy Cane. And then I built the legend around it and then created the characters to collide with the legend. But as soon as I had that candy cane, C-A-I-N, I was like, all right, well, I know that that's the, the biblical reference point um, and that I wanted to, to use that, that connection to the holiday um, and certainly explore some of my own, you know, grievances of, of religion as I experienced it growing up. Um, and obviously everybody's experiences are different, but I definitely like saw a trend that I was exploring about that kind of when young people are taught certain things about what's, what's naughty and nice, right. That like, that's a bad thought. Mm. You're bad for having it. Um, that sort of internalization of self-loathing was something that I experienced profoundly at, at Catholic school and that kind of, again, I didn't know I was going to be. <laughs> writing a fun little slasher about my religious trauma, but it just came pouring on out. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, and then to have have a family in that videotape that was kind of a dark mirror up to the family that finds it to 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 be an impetus for them to, in a very compressed and intense situation, to to reckon with with their own dynamics and um, yeah. I feel like it, it ties into this idea that a lot of slashers bring up, um, which is this, you know, kind of perverse notion of justice, you know, this, this kind of uh, reflection on um, you reap what you sow. And, and that's kind of what we look to slashers sometimes to do. It's like to be kind of the weirdly moralizing force <laughs> for, for us in a world that is, oftentimes built on systemic injustices um so do you i mean do you feel like candy cane picks up some of that same legacy and maybe you know kind of converts it to its own kind of creative energy uh yeah i mean that's definitely something that i perhaps one of the tropes that i also wanted to 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 challenge and therefore create some surprise with like that idea you know in, and we're, we've already spoiled the first chapter plenty so i don't feel bad <laughs> continuing to do so right, but, right. yeah but rick you know she's she pats she pets him on the head and says nice boy right before she kills him um so i wanted to kind of from the outset really be clear like this is not about the nice people get to survive and the naughty ones are punished this is there's going to be some chaos here um and to me that's also in challenging that, I'm also, I think, challenging that again. That that particular form of uh, of religion that I was personally raised in, where there was that sense of naughty and nice, but like, but is it really naughty to have 
sexual thoughts as a 14 year old boy does that make me a bad human <laughs> i don't think so now um so it i think i think that helps to kind of and again like those trips of like the the characters that you love to see killed there certainly are there's at least one in this book that that you can really revel in perhaps um but there's also plenty of kills where you're like, I didn't want that person to die. Um, but mm -hmm. that was one of the ways I wanted to keep people on their toes of like, especially because we're getting all these different character perspectives that really is anybody's fair game. And that keeps, keeps a different level of tension going. I think. I, I totally agree with you. I think that the, because you do such great character work, like even with, you know, um, what should just be a if it were any other like film or something like that right like they only exist to get killed <laughs> yeah. um and yet you bring in these characters and give them these kind of full emotional arcs um and and perhaps those arcs don't end super satisfyingly uh in a, a way that's really you know conclusive but yeah. i i think that you give them these these emotional arcs you give them these emotional stories and as a result, it really does play on our bloodthirstiness, you know, to like see people die in a, a horror movie um, or in this case, a horror novella. You know, there are so many opportunities for us to be like, oh, and he's going to die. But then we're like, yeah, but that's it's not deserved. Right. Is it deserved at all? Are any of these people is is, you know, the the kind of. um fruit of of their wants desires you know the fruit of of their living is it really death you know there's there's this idea in christianity of like the wages of sin of death is death right that's like romans um and and this this concept of like it doesn't really matter what it is the the the, the outcome is always you're gonna die <laughs> the, mm -hmm. the outcome is always yeah. suffering for any sin um and there's like there's no real it's all the same weight, you know, did you think impurely one time? Well, that's condemnable, right? right. Um, versus the people who are like actively running around and embezzling funds and foreclosing on people's homes. You know, it's like there's no real treatment of of or, or delineation of justice in this kind of Christian system. It's like all just the same penalty. It makes me too think about, you know, Memento Mori and like I have a tattoo on my wrist that is a, a visual reminder of like, you too will someday die. Um, and mm. writing horror, especially in a book like this, where <laughs> where every day I'm sitting down to write a chapter where somebody's going to die, um, it it's it, it gives me an opportunity to to constantly engage with that with death and practice death especially writing from the perspective of the person who is dying. Mm. Um, it's a really interesting way to, to engage with that memento mori concept of just like, as you said, like death, death, death is the end no matter what. So mm. I think perhaps that's why some folks can still find, you know, fun and joy from reading this type of stuff because it actually relieves some of that existential tension from our own lives to, mm. to engage in that reality. Well, I think too, it, it reminds us of, I don't know, for me, the whole purpose of empathy, right, is to remind us of um, the limited time that we have here, right? Mm -hmm. the, 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 the short amount of time that we live should be a reminder then 
to live well. Um, and that doesn't mean live lavishly, uh, but but to live well, to value the people that you come into contact with, to understand that everyone's life is not exactly like your life. So what can we do moment to moment to try to maybe make our lives and the lives of those around us just a little bit better, a little bit more pleasurable so that when we do leave, you know, maybe we leave the place a little bit better than we found it. Yeah, absolutely. That's, and that resonates for me of like, even though certain characters do not make it out of this book, I was always looking for ways for little moments of action and redemption mm. to show that they're, they're, they're taking some kind of thought towards others. Um, because even those, those little gestures can, you know, in a survival scenario, buy, buy something for somebody kind of thing. Yeah, it's a charitable way of thinking about life, right? Like the little moments of redemption, um, which I, I maybe that's also kind of a little Christian inspired, but um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I guess I just I love the idea that like you can always turn back, right? You can always have that that moment where you could be doing the right thing. Like there's no one bad choice that just pushes you over an edge. Yes, yeah, and I think that 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 even just that framework of choice and decision is something that comes from screenwriting for me is always when I'm teaching it, when I'm doing that work of saying like, you, you have to put the character in a position of choice. They have to decide to engage or not engage with this problem and move forward into the next scene where they have to make another choice. And that's really what, what drama is, is constantly mm. having to choose one thing or another and heading down a, a path as a result. Um, that's what really like activates the the characters and gets people interested and motivated. Yes, of course. Well, with all of the other writers of nostalgia that I've talked to recently, you know, I talked to Angela Sylvain, I talked to Alex Evanstein. Um, I want to pose the question to you about the place of nostalgia in your own writing and in our culture and, you know, what you kind of think of, um the the role and function of nostalgia in story yeah it's um i mean i love both of them and their work too um and it is it's an interesting thing you know we're certainly seeing plenty of 80s and 90s nostalgia and i think you know part of it is i think we're reflecting on like all right what have we as a as a society or as a species like lost in the last decade yeah, man 90s was not a decade ago. Oh, need to <laughs> need to reframe my brain here. I, uh, I I read a meme recently that literally said, you know, only 90s kids will remember. And as and some Zoomer was like, "You're a 30 year old man. Stop referring to yourself as a 90s kid." <laughs> oh, it's so hard. It's so real. Um, oh man. But yeah, I think I think there is a, you know, a sense of yearning for certain things that were uh, not not simpler. I think that's reductive, but like when there was a different sense of, of connection amongst people and a big part of it to me is the the modern technology piece, right? Of, mm. you know, to, to write a book or make a movie set in the eighties or the nineties, like before people had cell phones um, and we're just like going to the mall to spend time with each other. Um, I think that's a big, 
element of it. So I want I want to believe that there is a positive side to that nostalgia of us like really kind of wanting to connect back to that. Um, and certainly there can be negative sides to it of like dwelling too much in the past rather than the present or, you know, yearning for a rosy, rosy glass version of what was really happening at that time or who was, you know, not everybody, you know, has, with, 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 yeah, there, there, there are versions of it that can kind of take you towards a, a lack of perspective. But I think in horror, part of it too is just, they really don't make them like they used to when it comes to the, especially the, the 80s practical gore effects. So that's a very, <laughs> very specific form of nostalgia. I, I, I hate to be that person who is like, they really don't make them like they used to, but increasingly they don't, they just don't. Yeah. And yeah. there's an, there is an, a whole art that is lost in that process. Um, yeah. It, it makes me upset, but hopefully when Candy Cane Kills is adapted into a film, because we know it's going to happen uh, when it is, it, it'll be practical effects all the way down. I think it's, it has to, that's just part of the, that's part of the soul of it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, I don't think a, a discussion about nostalgia and the holidays would be complete without talking a little bit about you know some of our favorite uh, holiday memories so i kind of want to ask you that because this episode is going to come out you know in like smack dab in the middle of that christmas spirit uh, what are some of your favorite christmas memories so my uh you know even though i have a very irish name most of my family is is italian american my mother's maiden name is dell'italia which is pretty oh wow pretty literally italian. from italy <laughs> could not be more literal <laughs> um, uh, and her brother used to host us on christmas eve for the feast of the seven fishes and uh that's that's always kind of stuck with me as a as a tradition um you know Frank Sinatra music playing in the background, mm. one by one having the different fish. Um, oh, all the grown-ups getting increasingly drunk on wine, and <laughs> <laughs> that was Christmas Eve at my uncle's place. Um, yeah. Oh, I love you. I've never heard of the Feast of the Seven Fishes. By the way, like, is yes. this a? It's it's an Italian thing. It's an Italian thing. I I believe there's a there's a biblical, you know um oh, reference probably. point for it but i don't remember what it is but um yeah it takes it's a lot of work to cook seven different types of fish but yes it is uh yeah if you've seen the bear they do an episode that's that's based on it as well um but yeah it's a it's a it's a really food forward memory which to me is a very therefore um, kind of palpable and yeah not to stereotype Italians, but food forward is also a very Italian thing for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. That's like that was like grandma's first question every any time I talked to her was like, "Did you eat today? Like, what did you eat?" <laughs> Maybe that's just a grandma thing though, because my exactly. my grandparents are uh, very British, but that's also a thing. It's just like they're always asking, like, "Would you like a sandwich or something?" Yeah, I I think my favorite. Um, Christmas memories, of course, are are just visiting with family. That's absolutely a thing. Um, I got to visit with my dad's side of the family, all of whom live in Britain. Um, 
around 2008, 2009. And it was just a real eye opener because I've, I've known, of course, my, my dad's mom, my grandma, like I've known her my whole life, but I've, I've not really had an opportunity to meet all of her extended family, you know, um, because they live in Britain and, and they aren't able to visit so much. So I got to stay with them for a few weeks and I have never ever felt just so beautifully welcomed by a group of people, many of whom were drunk and kept confusing me for my father, which was a whole ride in, in and of itself. Um, but it was fascinating just how immediately I could recognize them as my blood, you know? Uh -huh. um, and, and so I think for me, like Christmas is always going to be dominated by that experience of just like being around family and feeling like you you're in your space you know like like feeling like you really are home with your people um i can't think of a thing more valuable to me than you know feeling at home with your people yes yeah that um is reminding me of uh Two, two Christmases ago, I drove up to Seattle where my brother is um, with his family and he's got two little ones who were probably t two and three at the time. And they got hit with a huge blizzard and just like snowed in and we just cooked and listened to music and enjoyed each other's company. And I will say that the, 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 the children have, were wearing red and white striped pajamas, which inspired <laughs> something. <laughs> <laughs> oh i love that i love that but it was a really warm memory uh of yeah just being you know in a, in that safe space of just like love and family and comfort and coziness i love that so much that's <laughs> that, that, what a what a wonderful wonderful thing well brian where can people find out more about your upcoming projects and follow you I am Brian McWriter, presently on Twitter, though less so. Um, Instagram is where I tend to spend most time social media-wise, and I'm still trying to get more time on threads. Uh, and then my website is also brianmcwriter.com. Um, so yeah, connect with me there, and that's where I am. I love it. And do you have anything on the horizon uh, that maybe we're excited about? I have something I'm excited about that I can't talk about yet. Um, <laughs> but I, in the mail right now is the debut issue of Monstrous Magazine. I have a, a flash fiction story in there that I'm excited about. Um, and yeah, follow me, follow me on the socials for maybe there will be some news soon. Brian, happy holidays. Thank you happy for making this one of my happiest holidays. I really appreciate you. Happy holidays to you, my friend. This is such a treat. It's always good to, to connect with you.